0: Did you know you can support your local independent bookstore and me in my efforts to promote books that feature women in aviation by shopping for your next aviatrix read on the Literary Aviatrix website? I built the website to serve as a central source to search and find books featuring women in aviation, and it was important to me to offer you the opportunity to buy from independent sellers. If the book you're interested in is available on bookshop.org, you'll find a link to purchase through my affiliate account on my website, which means I'll receive a small portion of the sale to support the content you love. Blue skies and happy reading. Hello, I'm Liz Booker, Literary Aviatrix. Welcome to the Aviatrix Book Review, where I review and discuss books featuring women in aviation. Check out the Aviatrix Book Review website, where you'll find hundreds of books featuring all kinds of aviation in every genre for all ages. and welcome to the Aviatrix Book Review, I'm Liz Booker. My guest today left a successful career in journalism to pursue her childhood passion to fly. She flew for ExpressJet before serving as a first officer in the Boeing 737 for United Airlines. She serves on the boards of advisors for the Organization of Black Aerospace Professionals, the Greater Philadelphia Chapter of Tuskegee Airmen, and United We Care. Her 100 Pair of Wings initiative to send 100 Black women through flight training at the Lieutenant Luke Weathers Jr. Flight Academy is set to launch in November of this year with a goal of graduating 100 new pilots by the year 2035. Her debut novel, A Pair of Wings, is historical fiction based on the life of Bessie Coleman. You can find her on her website, carolhopson.com. Be sure to stick around at the end of our conversation for a reading of A Pair of Wings by Carol Hobson. Carol Hobson, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh it's my gosh. I, there has been so much anticipation of this book. I have been so excited about it since I found out that you were working on it. And I had very high expectations for it. And I haven't <laughs> finished the book yet. But it has absolutely exceeded all of those high expectations. It is gorgeously written. I'm so excited to talk to you about it. And I'm actually glad that I haven't finished it because it's one of these books that, you know, I I like everything. I read everything. But I really love an immersive story. And I want to stay with Bessie in this story. And I want to stay with your writing. So I'm so excited about this. I want to know why you wrote this book and why you decided to publish it.
1: Well, first of all, thank you. I think that what you are doing is amazing. And um, I'm so grateful I had a chance to learn about your journey and how you got started telling the stories of people who tell stories because you are a storyteller. And it is a discipline that I think has been lost a little bit, right? And there's amazing stuff with communications, there's amazing stuff with the planet. But I think that storytelling, which our brains are hardwired to receive at the art of it, I don't want to lose that. And that's why I wrote this book. So I'll go way back. I was four years old and wanted to fly an airplane. I had never seen a woman who flew an airplane. I had never seen a black woman who flew an airplane. And I had never seen anyone who wore eyeglasses. And I'm wearing my contact lenses, but I had never seen that. And I do believe that if you, sometimes if you can't see it, you can't be it. But here's the thing. Bessie Coleman had never seen it. And yet she, as a person who was peerless, was able to do what had not been done. I didn't know about her until I was 34 years old. I'd gone to college and graduate school. Bessie Coleman never appeared in any textbook I read. She never appeared in any research that I looked for. She was not there. She was missing from any sort of discourse about people who flew, about women, about superheroes. She was not there. How could that be? And so my goal was to not write another biography. Doris Rich wrote a beautiful biography, and it's it's well done. I wanted to write a story that people would pick up and read from L.A. to New York and not put it down. I wanted to, to write a, a historical fiction because what was missing was the glue. And um, that glue is what keeps the story together. So what were the conversations? How did she meet people? What did she think? What was her journey like? And so in order to really understand that, I went on her journey and went to almost every place that she went to. And um, I tried to do it without modern conveniences. And it was a challenge. I went to the north of France and walked the nine miles that she walked. I was going to ask you if you did that. I did. And I even I got my weight down to about what her weight would have been. I'm not there now, I might add. <laughs> and I bought shoes that were like the shoes that people wore 100 years ago. So why? Well, this literally, when you say, I walked in someone's shoes, I wanted to walk in her shoes. I wanted to walk in her footsteps. And so our beautiful shoes today have a lot of tread on the bottom and a lot of um, cushion, right? Almost like little shock absorbers to our steps. But that didn't exist a hundred years ago. And so it was just leather and it was flat. And when you walk the first mile, a little fat on your sides, a little back here, it itches. And then after a mile, it doesn't itch so much. Two miles, it doesn't itch at all. Three miles, endorphins start being released. Four miles, you start moving. Five, six, you're late. Seven, eight, nine miles. You're almost sprinting by the end of nine miles. And walking in her footsteps meant the difference in the story that I would write. And so I spent a lot of time just literally replaying, reliving her life. And so I thought from the biographies that perhaps she had flown around the mustard fields in France, but she didn't. She flew on the beach in France. And what did that mean? That meant that there eight moons. And those moons control the tides. And those tides dictate when the water comes in and when it goes out. So you have to understand that in order to land on sand, not water. Oh my goodness. Yeah. On one occasion, I stayed so long there at the beach because it was so beautiful. And picture this, that you get out to the beach and you're walking back. And you realize, oh, there's some distraction. Like, for example, there was the Castle of Guerlain, and I went to go look at it, and I wasn't keeping track of my time. And so when I walked back the nine miles to the town where she could afford to live, I was late. And so I was walking on a dark road, and I was in a foreign country on a dark road. And it was very lonely. I felt very vulnerable. You could hear screech owls and a bat came over my head and there were wolves in the trees. And whoo, I mean, I was able to feel the vulnerability that she experienced. So I say all this to say that at the core, at its core, my book is about two things, the dawn of aviation and the dawn of the great Migration. So African-Americans came from the South to the North, starting in 1915. And that was the year that Bessie Coleman came from Texas to Chicago. And the research in writing the book was just, it was fascinating to me. I enjoyed um, the research as much as I did the writing. And so I spent 12 and a half years writing this book, (laughs) 12 and a half years.
2: When I started
1: the book, my children were, um, let's see, they were probably about four and six. So here years later, they're 16 and 18. Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote The Warmth of Other Suns, a book that I read incredibly closely because it really was some of the first work on the great migration. She did such a superb job. I heard her speak here in Martha's Vineyard once. And she said, if my book had been a baby, it would have come out a middle schooler. And I add to that and I say it would have had a backpack and some shoelaces and homework. <laughs> so um, so, I, so writing the book was its own journey. It was its own journey and the stick that you had to have. Because across that period of time, I went to Express Jet Airlines and learned how to fly the Embraer 145. And then I went to United Airlines, where I am now, and I fly the Boeing 737. So there were training programs. It was a probationary year. There was all of that. And it was just, um, I had my own journey while I was following hers. And my goal with the book
0: is book, movie. Why? Because I love a good movie. And this is going to be a good movie if they do your book justice. (laughs) But only if they do your book justice.
1: And I think to your point, that's why I'd like to stay involved some. So, for example, Bessie flew World War I airplanes. I don't want to see a World War II airplane cut in there. No. Right?
0: Yeah. She
1: flew. Yeah. You know, so I think that that's critical that I stay involved. Um, some of the, some of the um, wardrobe is very iconic because she went and had her own uniform made. What would it look like? What would this uniform look like on a woman? What would it look like on a black woman with hips? What is she going to look like? How will she present herself? Just as she was so different 100 years ago, I am different now. And so my goal becomes book, movie, 100 Black Women in Flight School. So that number 100, it keeps coming up. Why? So 100 years ago, June 15th, 1921 she flies an airplane. She gets her certificate. She earns it in France. Why? Because no one in the U.S. will teach her to fly. And so here she is learning how to fly in a different country, which means embedded in that sentence is she has to learn how to speak French in order to learn how to fly. So her French is not just conversational. It is understanding. It is writing. It is speaking. And it is doing so in a discipline that's a hundred years old. And so what are my travails? What are my complaints? What are my difficulties in life? I think that I can supersede them. I think I can manage because I had her as an example.
0: You are a storyteller (laughs) and I love listening to you. It's fabulous. Back up a little bit. So, you didn't start flying when you were in your 20s. Tell us about that. What were you doing before, and how did you come to aviation? Thank you for that question. So, I talked
1: about when I wanted to fly when I was four, but I didn't take my first flight lesson until I was 34. I learned of who Bessie Coleman was when I was 34. So thank you for the backup. Yeah, roll the tape back. I knew that this is what I wanted to do. So before I just quit my job, I went to a women in aviation convention. And I went to an organization of Black Aerospace Professionals Convention. At the former, I met a woman named um, Jenny Beatty, Captain Jenny Beatty at American Airlines. Wolf Johnny. And she gave me a gift. She gave me a present, a cup. And on this coffee mug, a a coffee mug, was a picture of Bessie Coleman, that same iconic photograph that's on the front of my book. And that's the reason why it's there. And on the back, there were two paragraphs about her life. I stood there in the middle of this convention, women going back and forth. In this moment, I realized that there was this amazing woman whom I had never known or heard about. At this convention, Jenny said to me, You know, I think you can do this, it will require plenty of sacrifice. Most of it's gonna be financial. So I met my husband at the time boyfriend and he said, we were at a dinner and he said, tell me, what is something that you wanna do more than anything? And I said to him, if I tell you and you laugh, you will never get any of this. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. And he said, oh, my goodness, what in the world do you want to do? And I said, "I, I first time in my life, I said, it. I want to fly an airplane. He um, made dinner for me. And as he said, if I cook, you clean. I picked up my placemat. And under my placemat were gift certificates to go fly an airplane. I took my first discovery flight when I was in my 30s. So I wanted to quit my job right then, but we decided to create an exit strategy. I finished my time at Foot Locker, where I was the vice president of training and development, Foot Locker Stores training, and I had started a university there. So I had merchandisers and buyers. I had sales associates. I had all of the video production for um, product knowledge, and I had an office in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, I was always on an airplane. I worked a lot there. I took another job at um, L'Oreal Cosmetics, because it was a big signing bonus, I could sock away my money. And I quit my job, went to flight school full-time, was moving and grooving. In eight months, I went from one hour to certified flight instructor, And I was teaching within days of getting my CFI, like two days. And that was the end of June, 2001, July, August, September 11. By this time, my boyfriend and I had gotten married. We moved to New Jersey uh, so that I could be close to airports. And he said to me, as much as I love you and as much work as you've done, right now your industry is going to struggle and it's going to struggle for a decade and I think it's time for us to have children and I got pregnant right away by September 17th I was pregnant so I think when you get pregnant older sometimes there's struggles mine was not getting pregnant mine was gaining weight I gained 140 pounds I weighed almost 300 pounds
0: Girl, really? I mean, I gained 60 pounds with all three of mine, but wow.
1: When you think about it as gorgeous as you are, that's 612-120. you obviously lost it and kept it off. And yeah, it, it's no some work. work, it's, it's for you
0: work.
1: too. <laughs> so I lost every pound in the year, came up here to celebrate, and guess what happened? Pregnant again. This time age 40. Gain 80, so as I like to say, the trend was going in the right way. And then I had an infant and a toddler. And flying, while it was important, was amazing. But I had these beautiful, bouncing, and I mean bouncing, boy children. And I was having fun in a way that was unexpected, in a way that I felt blessed, in a way that I felt I had to treasure and so I took flying mommy jobs. I was a flight instructor. I worked at CAE, was an unpaid internship. And I did all of those things because why? Because I had to fly because I wanted to fly because I wanted to be close. I, I never get into the mommy wars, right? Who did what, um, who went to work? Who? I don't get into that. I don't care about that. What I care about is the decisions that made sense for my life. And so It just made sense. I turned 50 and it was like a switch went on. And I said, all right, I've gotten these things done, right? I've done these things. I started writing the book when my kids were six and four. I started writing the book up here in Massachusetts because in many ways, things here are the way that they were done 100 years ago. So they're biplane rides and I wouldn't be surprised I'm listening to the whir of the WACO airplane that goes overhead. And I just felt like here was the right place to write the book, right? And so I spent the 12 years writing the book, rewriting the book. The first time I wrote. So for all you writers out there, stick with it. Stick with it. Don't give up. The first one, two, three, four years, the first two years, I wrote the book as an omniscient narrator. But the problem was I couldn't get close enough. I couldn't. And so the omniscient narrator had to go away. And so then I had Bessie Coleman's best girlfriend, whom I named Norma. Why did I name her Norma? My best friend in high school was named Norma. My aunt was named Norma. Norma was an old soul's name. And she was also very much like my best girlfriend, Rosalind Russell. She was also like the women that I met along the way in my research of Bessie Coleman, the seamstresses, the cooks, the black women who around the turn of the century made this country function. And so I made them into an amalgam. And that woman, that beautiful woman, Norma, became Bessie Coleman's counterweight. So Bessie was short. Norma was tall. Um, Bessie was an an adventure seeker. She was um, a little bit of a daredevil. And Norma was not so. She was very quiescent. She was very um, focused on home and having children. I could relate to both of those women. And so I had Norma have two girls and her girls were kicking around the ball in the garage and poof, they hit a foot locker and poof, the foot locker opens, a moth comes out, the dust comes out and their Bessie's journals. That was great. That was nice.
0: I spent two years doing that. <laughs> I, 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 I just, I'm in it. I'm in it now. So I can relate. <laughs> Girl, two years. And what happened was it was amazing, but then Norma
1: couldn't explain lift to her own daughters. So I had to take a step back. Like we just talked about taking a step back. And that step back was remarkable because it really made me look inside myself. What was it that made me lose 140 pounds? What was it that made me lose the 80? What was it? Look at your eyes. I could see in your head. You're, you're asking yourself, what made you lose that 60 once twice? Three times. Where, where does the determination come from to keep going when other people tell you, you're too old? You're too, no, what are you talking about? That's just a pipe dream. You can't go fly for the airlines. There's nobody there who looks like you. Did people say that to you? Sure. Wow. What are you doing? Oh, girl, please, going back to what you did before you were successful. What's wrong with you? No, 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 no. Just, no, 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 don't do that. Go back go back. Why would I go back when I look forward when I walk? Why would I go back? And so who was it inside of me who could relate to Bessie? And so what I did was I took six months off from the book. I put it in a stack. I refused to touch it. I refused to look at it. Every time I went to the stack, I would do something with my hands. There's plenty to do when you're a mom, when you got you know, chicken to make, you know, you got fruit to cut, you got salads to make. And at the end of the sixth month, set a date. I opened the books again and I went at it this time. First person. That took me somewhere. I was serious every single day. I wrote, not that I wasn't serious before. I've always been serious, but there was another gear. And I found it. I found it in my heart. And I found it in my head. And I found it in her spirit. (laughs) And in finding that other gear, in writing about her, in living her life, in finding her determination, I somehow dredged up my own. Age 50 came. Still writing. I found an agent, a wonderful friend of mine named Yana Hanworth, helped me find my agent. Marie Brown said to me on one of our many lunches in the Harlem haunts that she would take me to. We'd meet for lunch and she critiqued what I had done. And sometimes the sessions were a little blistering. It's, oh God, God oh to God, oh Lord. <laughs> Go back and back to Express Jet where I was, it was a United um, theater. So we would fly cities like Cleveland and Dayton and um, a lot of Michigan cities, Grand Rapids, Lansing. Sometimes you'd spend a whole four day trip called a pairing in a state like Michigan, or if you, they ship you down to Houston, you'd spend all four days in Texas, which was fodder from my book because Bessie was from Texas, born in Atlanta, Texas. Her parents were two years old when she moves to um, when they moved the family to Waxahachie, Texas. And every one of those trips, I learned something. I wrote something down. I kept it. Right before I go to sleep, I would have a little book right by my bed and I'd scrape into it, scratch into it. Not right, scratch into it, fall asleep, get up, do my flights, that vigor five, six legs a day, four or five legs a day. That vigor was what I tapped into. And so when I finished the book, I, I turned it over to Marie. She said, Good, not great, but good. She said, There's something missing. I said, Missing, get me, get me missing. we're done. After my 17th rewrite. So she said, <laughs> I'll tell you what's missing. She said, What's missing? is that the social media of the day was newspapers. You've spent a lot of time, you showed me your research. You have a book, it's a green notebook. And I had the years, 1915, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. You've got these years, you've got these Chicago Defender articles. You need to make reference to them in the story. You need to hang this story on the newspaper articles as if you took a beautiful dress, and hung it. Look at your eyes. I love your eyes. I hang this dress on a hanger. Your eyes are very expressive. I know when I <laughs> Yeah, I don't have a poker
0: face, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> All right, mama. We need to know each other. It's good. And so she said, hang your story like you would a dress on a hanger. This and
0: is what I say, so yeah. So the reason my eyes are doing that is because this is one of my favorite things about the story it is the way that you have immersed Bessie in her in the history in an active way and i thought that that was the most clever thing it it gave her an understanding in the context of the world around her in an active way because how else would she know all of that but through the newspaper i just thought it was very clever to to bring that history to life that way so here goes the other thing she was a reader
1: So just as you would, if you, in our modern day commute, you hear the the big ferry. So just as when I hop on the ferry, I open a book. Girl, I love a good book, right? So just as she would hop on a train or if she was going to a place and the mode of transportation, she would be reading. She was a reader. So she would consume a newspaper so much so that, Black people who read the Chicago Defender, it was passed like contraband, I say, from place to place. So although the newspaper was written in Chicago, it followed the train line through Pullman Porters all across the country. Now I should go like this, not like this, but the train lines were North stop. So that's why when you meet a lot of Black people and you say, oh, Carol, where are your people from? Well, my people were from where you spent some time in Barbados, the Caribbean. They came over on a boat.
0: All the Bajans will be excited to hear that. for sure. <laughs> So my people were
1: from both the Caribbean and from the South, from Barbados, right? So they came for, on a boat, literally, and then from the South. So the train lines were North-South. So Georgians, Virginians, North Carolinians, they came up to to Washington, D.C., to Philadelphia, to Newark, right? To New York City, to Boston. And so the people from Chicago, their parents, Alabama. Texas, um, Mississippi, they came up from the south to the north train lines to Chicago. If they had um, enough stamina and if they lived, if they survived, they would go out west to California. They go north to Oklahoma. Some of them would stop there. And so the Homesteading Act had people homesteading. So those were the kind of things that the Chicago Defender helped people with. So you can get a cold water flat in Chicago. You can get this job. I need you to come north to do that. The man who started the Chicago Defender was amazing. His name was Robert sangstack Abbott. And he was a lawyer by trade. He became a millionaire, a self-made millionaire in the teens, a black man. How? By writing the stories of black people without ever selling out. And so, he would tell you um, through his writers where to find the best dinners, where to find the best jobs, where to find the best housing. And those Pullman porters would take those newspapers and pass them to people. They were read a couple dozen times before they were used as bird cage liner. And so that was how black people came from the South to the North. And so she gets herself to Chicago. And again, at its quintessential essence. This book is about two things, right? The dawn of the great migration and the dawn of aviation. And she's the only woman in the world. She's a superhero. You can make those two things come together and be a thing. Here we are a hundred years later. And with a pilot shortage, I believe that we can take advantage of this moment and look at an entire group of people an entire workforce that we've never tapped into <sighs> opportunity it's not something nice to do for business it's a good thing to do for business it's a smart thing to do for business and i think that that's something that we should be doing
0: so i i love that spin on it and i agree with you and for many many other reasons other than just that it's good for business i want to i want to hear from you first of all do, 100 years after Bessie you you alluded to people outside of aviation telling you you were crazy for wanting to do this but what I'd like to know how you've experienced aviation yourself uniquely as a black woman. And then also, you know, there are a lot of barriers to entry for anyone in aviation. I mean, in in the military, you have to compete for it. You have to do well on your aptitude test. You have to be a high performer and you're competing against a lot of other high performers just to get into flight school. And there it's like extremely competitive. And then in the civilian world, there's the money is I think the primary barrier, uh, you know, along with having the time and the discipline to focus on your studies and to learn the maneuvers. So uh, in addition to understanding your perspective and your experience, I'm wondering what you see as any barriers there might be that are unique to black women, if there are any, or if there aren't, then I want to know that too. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for that, because it's, um, it's such a complex question.
1: So here's what I've learned. There are two barriers to entry, and you said it, for just about anyone. So one is money, and the other, to, to train a pilot, in addition to college, might be $150,000. Here's the other barrier to entry, access. So remember what I said? I, My husband and I, we get married. We moved to New Jersey so I could be close to small airports where I could train. I didn't even know that small airports existed. So I flew out of, when I became a flight instructor, an airport um, called Caldwell Airport. I didn't even know that it existed. I had driven by the street on Passaic Road where it was. I didn't know that it was an airport, Morristown Airport. I had heard of it, but I didn't know that flight training went on there. Teterboro Airport when I first started training they did flight training they no longer do because they've gotten so large that they now only do business training so it's access when I speak to students and my personal goal before COVID was 2,500 students a year now it's the same in some ways it's gotten easier in some ways it's gotten harder so I believe that telling people that this exists as an opportunity Begins the trail of access. Well, when does that happen? Best time is probably middle school. The kids are malleable. The kids are focused. They go home. They tell their parents, hey, you know, career day was today, and I'm not this person." And she
0: talked about flying airplanes, and she was she was dressed in a pilot's uniform. You are getting at the very heart of my entire motivation for getting a degree in writing for children and young adults. I like to say that my goal is to infiltrate the minds of young women and girls and convince them to join us in aviation in whatever capacity and to have some representation there, examples that they can look up to. Superheroes. I actually refer to my characters as superheroes in my book. So I am like 100% tracking with you on that. Absolutely. And here goes the other thing. And you hit the nail on the
1: head. So the military is no longer training as many pilots as it used to. Why? Because wars aren't fought the same way. But I'll tell you something that they are doing. They're training a lot of UAS, so unmanned aircraft systems pilots. Well, guess what? If you think we're far behind on the other, we're really far behind on that because we don't even know that it's going on. So tell them.
0: Let's pause and talk about how far behind we are. Um, and I want to I reference this article in a FAR magazine from February of 2020. And the title is, Where Are All the Black Women Pilots? And I want to hear from you where they are. But the numbers that they quote, this is from 2020, is that, you know, we all know this number of 7% of airline pilots are women, that there are fewer than 1%. Female black pilots fewer than 150 licensed black pilots in the United States. Tell me what we're going to do. So, here it is. We're a hundred years after
1: Bessie Coleman became a superhero and did what she did. Learned another language, went to another country, got her earned her pilot certificate in French in France. Came back to the U.S. Went back to Paris, Berlin, and Amsterdam. Had the backing, strong black men. One became her lover. Ooh, chapter 13.
0: <laughs> and I'm one not became, there yet, but we're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute.
1: And one became her friend, her mentor. So here we are hundred years out. And you said the numbers, hundred thousand people fly for a living, roughly 7% are women, 3% are African-American of that number. 150, if you count everybody, cargo, military, airline, major, regional, everyone. How do we do it? My goal is book movie 100 Black Women in Flight School by the year 2035. If you figure it takes three to five years to ramp up to get an airline pilot ready, right? So that's from and I've had that experience, right? So going from no flight hours to flying, to getting to the regionals, to the, the big sandwich, the cream in the middle, um, the sandwich meat in the middle, which is instructing and learning. Right. And then finally getting to the regionals and then finally qualifying for the majors. All of those steps. We get there by being led. We get there by example. We get there by someone reaching back and bringing forward. So here we go. Amen, sister. (laughs) Amen. Absolutely. I saw you. Amen, sister. So how do we get there? I believe it's the 100 Wings Project. I am seeking Somewhere around $7 million. Here goes the numbers. We started a flight. So each one of these things happens as a step, right? And I take a breath. So organization of Black aerospace professionals has spawned amazing, amazing tentacles. One of them is Sisters of the Skies. Young Black women, um, some of them young at heart, I think.
0: <laughs> and one Coastie.
1: <laughs> and one dog born coasty, who started this, who started the organization, whom I gave her first flight lesson to, Angel Hughes.
0: That's awesome. I didn't know that. So cool. So,
1: so And she took my son for a flight. So that generational reach back, that's how you do it. You can't Angel and, and Teresa Claiborne and Nia Wordlaw and Stephanie Grant. And there's too many to name. General Stacey Harris, those women reaching back. Now, here goes the thing. There's a lot of Black women who are doing this. We are what we are. And it sometimes feels exhausting. But there's a lot of other women who are helping us as well. We have partners in this because people realize that they want their airlines to do well, that they want a talent pool that has been untapped. People understand who are really, really sharp. They get the business imperative. But let me let me go for a second back to where I was. Organization of Black Aerospace Professionals. That spawned Sisters of the Skies. Also, Organization of Black Aerospace Professionals. It's a mothership. It also spawned the Lieutenant Colonel Luke Weathers Flight Academy in Olive Branch, Mississippi. And here's what I at. June 18, 2018, we started that flight school. In four years, 18, 19, 20, 21, three years going on four, we have probably about 50 students every year, four African-American female flight instructors. Um, It is a remarkable program because it's run by two airline pilots. So there there are two captains there, Captain Albert Glenn of FedEx. He's retired after 44 years and Captain Jeff Harrison at UPS. Those two gentlemen from competing cargo companies come together and what have they done? They have created the most amazing organization that does what? That gets airline pilots minted. And they know because they've been airline pilots. And so here we go. It's that reach back. It's not just a look, it's the reach back. It's the work. And so we can get an airline pilot through that flight program for about $50,000. One third of what it would cost on the open market. Why? Because it is a nonprofit entity and it's a nonprofit program. So we can get a student through in a year for $50,000. Very important to me that the first step, the private pilot, that each woman pays for that herself, that's $8,000. It's a lot less than it is in New York, a lot less than it is in Atlanta, a lot less in Chicago. Now, that's 42,000 left. Times 100, that's 4.2 million dollars. I need a little help. (laughs) So that's about another five over the course of, say, 14, 15 years with helping to get um, relationships started with about a dozen institutions, uh, colleges, HBCUs, uh, community colleges and high schools and junior high schools. So five educational steps. We're going to make that happen. And all that we probably will launch in the fall. So book first. It's not linear because they're going to be parallel. And then um, Luke Weathers, like a full-on press for that. And I don't care where they go to school, but I just know that we can get them through for an amazing price tag and a remarkable program led by airline Pilot. So that's why I like that.
0: It's a fabulous concept and a very inspiring program. I'm so excited about it. I can't wait to watch it unfold. And I hope you, I, and I know that you will get all of the money that you need because people are going to believe in this. And I feel like this book is going to help connect with people a lot. Oh my gosh. So I, let's go back to the book for a minute. Okay. I, and I, I usually split these conversations up between writing and book, but I feel like you've already kind of woven that into our conversation. So I just want to um, I think I want to just stay with you for the whole conversation and, and talk more about the book. Um, first of all, I, I want to gush a little bit more about it in terms of craft, because mm-hmm. you, the first thing that struck me in this book was the voice, mm-hmm. Bessie's voice. It was so crystal clear. It was like she was alive. Mm-hmm. And then the descriptions. I mean, you Like I said, this is immersive in the way that you put her actively in the context of the history, both in the United States and in her in her setting in France as well. And the ship scene, you nailed that, like, you know, the way that it feels to be on a ship on the way. All of it. You've nailed all of it, I have to say. <laughs> it brings her to life in, in such a fresh way, the way... And No offense to a biographer, but the way that a biography doesn't have the liberty to do by putting it in this fictional context, you've done exactly what you set out to do. I want to just hit on one part of the book, though, um, one aspect of the book. It is a very small aspect, but for me, it was something that really like made her flesh and blood, and that was the sex scenes. And I don't know what that says about me, but I'm just going to tell you right now, like she was vibrant. She was vivid in my mind, but for some reason that made her like alive and flesh and blood for me. Like she was my friend, you know, she's not some dusty old historical character. Like she was a woman that I could spend time with. Why did you make that choice to keep those or to put those scenes in there? And they're very, very well written. Very, I think, you know. Descriptive, thoroughly (laughs) descriptive. (laughs) Why did you choose to keep those?
1: So first of all, thank you for that question. I got chills when you talked because my goal was to make her not dusty. Because in my head, in my spirit, when I'm going through those trainings, when I have to go back to training, when I have to walk into the flight deck, when I walk through the airport and I watch people look at me, 95% of it is positive. When I see, when I check into the hotel, I'm with my partner. I've been at United Airlines two and a half years. I'm the first officer. Um, I watch people come up to me and, and full conversation, like they're my friend. Hey, can you tell me a little bit about where you went to flight school? I'm wondering where you got the hat. Hey, listen, the shoes, those shoes, you know, those shoes, are they comfortable? Yes, they are. Where did you um where, where do you get your hair done when you get to St. Louis or Chicago? Where do you get your hair done you get... It? I wanted her to be not just a friend in your head. I wanted her to be an ally in your head because she's mine. I wanted the sex scenes to be real. I wanted them to be tasteful because she's elegant, right? And she's a she's a Southern girl. She's a, she's a religious woman. She's a spiritual woman, right? So I wanted you to get that sense. But I also wanted you to know that she's passionate about flying. She's passionate about love. She's passionate about where she spends her time. Why? Time. It's the only resource. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care. I don't care what you have. Time is the only resource. You can never find more she was 34 years old when she died. And in that time she lived a full, vibrant, passionate life. And when she makes love to someone it is because she has given her heart, her soul. And so the sex is the sex is an outgrowth. It is it's the flower on the plant. The plant is strong and gets a lot of water. That's why its leaves are so beautiful and succulent. But it's the flower that attracts the bee, right? And pollinates and moves on to some others to make prettier flowers. So it's, it's her as a flower that we see, not just those strong roots, not just superhero, but it's the vulnerable woman who, although she does all these things, she still has trouble finding a mate. Who will back her when the chips are down? Who will support her? I found that mate in my husband. Lucky me. I feel as though she made sure I had that so that I could keep going. I feel like her spirit, her strength, her passion, her love that she makes is just an outgrowth of who she is. And I know I'll get criticized. Oh my God, you made Bessie have sex? Yes, I did, because she's a real woman. That's a real awesome. woman.
0: Yeah. And she and it made her again. I don't know what it says about me, but it made her real to me. Because you're real. It says, you're sure. real.
1: Yeah, it says that you're real. It says that the blood and guts that we go through with three babies, or the blood and guts you go through not having them. Yeah. yeah. It says that all of us are connected. It says that she went through some sugar honey iced. Tea okay it says she went through it and came out on the other side smelling like that flower because each time she dug deep and created as my girlfriend jenny says as people say lemonade out of some lemons i better get to walking i better get to stepping i have things to do
0: tell me in what ways did i mean obviously you this is a lot of creative writing And you have already explained how you actually walked in her footsteps so that you could bring that to life for us. But were there any ways that the book significantly departs from the history as you know it, or that you really had to fill in? Obviously, we can't go back and see what she thought of a meal that she ate. I mean, even those descriptions were fabulous. But like, where does this significantly depart from the history, if at all?
1: So I love that question as well. Great question. So, when I was in France, in the north of France, I stayed in food. Oh, God, I hope I didn't butcher the name of the town. And in this town is where the Quadrons are um, immortalized in this one particular restaurant. And it's a restaurant of, I so saw that part I didn't make up. But the meals, I ordered what was on the menu. And like many parts of the world, it is as it was 100 years ago the same restaurant, same tables, the cloisonne made out of plain parts. And what that did, and by the way, I'd like to pull out all the food, foodie, 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 pull it all out of that book and put it into something else. Maybe it's um that gorgeous gentleman Satterfield who does high on the hog. Maybe he'll say to me, hey, look, let's do a food thing on Bessie Coleman's journey. What was the food like? Right? Because that that in and of itself is a journey. What foods, there's that scene on the train which you've described, in which people have in their sacks, right? Traveling food. Um, yard bird fried up uh, uh, biscuits traveling for food, food that won't spoil so quickly that you can package in a in a in a in a handkerchief because they didn't have a lot of reynolds wrap and plastic wrap they didn't have that how did they store food what was that like food is sustenance sex is life these are things that make people real i try to take doris Rich's biography which the the I have so many copies and I've given away so many copies of the copies. I have a dog ear. I wanted that. I wanted to not depart from her story. I didn't have to create her life was vivid enough. So what I had to do was make the glue in between these amazing events. We know that she meets Anton Fokker, Anton Fokker who single-handedly changed world war one with his synchronization gears. Little camshaft, And it goes like this one moves the propeller one moves so that a bullet can load. And as the propeller takes its arc, it shoots the moving arc of the propeller. Simple, brilliant, beautiful Fokker. We know that these two meet. What did they talk about? I believe that their meeting was a love affair that happened between their ears, not anywhere south of their neck. I believe that her German instructor, who was he? He, as part of losing the war, You've got to be an injured spirit. So it didn't take much to make the jump to lonely, vulnerable, both of them lonely, vulnerable, trapped, and yet free in their own prisons, trying to fight out of those things. It didn't take much for her to notice, oh, he's got broad shoulders. He's broken. I can't fix him because I'm working on myself. right? You know, that's That's a grown woman's lesson right there. But what I can do is I can take from this moment and love in this moment because he has worked himself into a spot so that he can teach me. He didn't want any more women. He had had a woman. True. Uh, Instructor, I mean to say. And she, because of mechanical problems, had an accident. So he said, oh, well, accidents happen because of women. I don't want any more women. True. True. All true. Now, here she comes. Why does he change his mind? How does, he, how does his injured spirit warm to hers how does hers warm to him how do they meet in this middle black woman from texas white a european man from germany a war in between them how do how do they meet so that she can learn from him so she can teach him what the world what in the whoa that didn't take a lot of <laughs> But again, now there I felt like sex would have been, I don't believe that you would have had sex with him because then you're really vulnerable, right? But just because you love or you find something passionate or you warm to an injured spirit doesn't mean you have sex with him, it just means you warm to an injured spirit. Let's keep it right there. Because that in between the ears is deeper, right? Than like I said, south of the neck. You know what that
0: is. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I could talk to you all day. Um, I want to say a couple of things. Well, first of all, is there anything else that you really, really want to talk about before we kind of come to wrap things up that we have missed?
1: I have loved this project. I love you for taking an interest in it. I want people to read this book. I want you to help in the way that you can. I want you to meet the challenge where you are. United Airlines has done something which I think is remarkable, and they received quite a bit of dust around it at first, and that is they said we want to hire 5000 pilots by the end of the decade, right? because we have pilot shortage. you saw the other day, it's news, I'm not making up anything, where um, a, a, another major airline canceled hundreds of flights because they didn't have enough pilots. So my goal book movie 100 black women flight school when I wake up in the morning, I say my prayers I say thank you father for all my gifts. Thank you, Father, for things I have gotten and, and received that I have not known. Thank you, Father, for grace. Dear Father, book, movie, 100 Black Women in Black School. And I swing my feet over the bed. And so that prayer that I have that keeps me going, that spirituality, is something I would like for your readers to say, you know what I would like to do? I'd like to help that mission. Maybe it's $5. Maybe it's 500 Maybe you know someone who can help. Um, I received $5,000 from General Atomics, from a a, a talk. They had their African-American and their women's group together. And um, they put those two groups together right in the middle of COVID. And we did a Zoom call and I was so grateful to them. They gave me $5,000. I turned it over to Luke Weathers. I believe in this mission. I invest in it. I've invested my time and energy. And I believe that that is what will make other people invest.
0: If we want to invest in it, if we want to donate to this effort, where can we do that?
1: So you can go to my website, com, And there is a place to donate. There's a little donate button. And it's called the Jet Black Foundation. Love the name, (laughs) Jet Black Foundation. The name? My sister gave it to me. My sister is Lorene Carey. She wrote um, a ton of bestsellers. Last one is Lady Sitting about my grandmother who um, died at 101. So that old spirit, that old soul, that old something, I know a little something about that because I had my grandmother well into my adulthood. But here's what I would say to you. So right now we're awaiting 501c3 uh, status. So that's pending, but we're working on it. And what I would say to people is give give up your time, give up your time to this effort or any other effort that you feel makes a difference in this doggone world. It's the Gandhi quote, right? You know, be the difference, be the change that you want to see. And I believe if you come on board with this mission, your work's already done because I'm trying to think methodically. I'm trying to think well, I'm trying to build. And I believe it will outlast me. I want to outbuild my mission so that I'm not needed anymore to do this. I want to build that. I want to finish
0: what she started. I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. I love what the ladies at Sisters of the Skies are doing. I love the women that I know inside the Coast Guard who have been networking and and pulling people along with them since they started. They got it early, like they figured that out. Uh, you know, I worked with LaShonda Holmes when she was a brand new pilot, um, and I was her chief pilot, and that girl was out in the public putting herself out there because she comes from humble beginnings. She was in the foster system, and she is inspiration. I flew with her into Compton Field for, the, they have um, a little flight school there for young people. Robin Petgrave was running it at the time when we were there, and they would have like a little fly-in uh, every year, and they'd have Tuskegee Airmen there. They had one plane that they had had signed by all all the living Tuskegee Airmen that was right there that the, the children of Compton got to go fly in. I met 12-year-old black boys in that neighborhood who were flying helicopters, and I flew in there with LaShonda, and she was a rock star. So I love that you guys are doing this, and it's fabulous. And I want to just say that there's one more way that you can leave a legacy and inspire young women the same way that I want to. And that is through writing. You know, we've got our social media, we've got all these causes, you guys are out pounding the pavement and putting yourselves out in front of people. But think of the numbers of children that you could reach or, you know, just the general public to inspire and educate them. When you find the time, and even if you don't have the time right now, you better be writing a journal, you better be keeping a record of your experience because you need to write your story. Right now in the publishing industry, there's a huge push for own voices and for, for representation. And now the time is so ripe for you ladies who have the time, who've had your careers to write your stories, to take your stories and put them in fiction, to write the stories of other people in history who have inspired and, you know, propelled us forward. So that's my little niche is the writing. And just so you know, we, the writers in aviation, we have been building content to help you on that path. And so that's like my little contribution to this world I love is you. to to help you because, you know, like you, you worked on your book for 12 years. I'm sure learning about publishing and all of those things was a steep learning curve. And there are Vertical. lots of resources out there, but we want to provide resources to the people who have a story to tell and maybe don't know where to start so we're doing that. And I'm going to ask you and it doesn't sound like you could possibly have time in your life with this with all for for this with all <laughs> of the things that you've going on. But are you going to write any other books? <laughs> so let me just
1: say, first of all, I want to thank you because you are the person who is behind the camera and I know you never want to be the story, but from what you've done in your life you have inspired many. What you're doing right now, in your in your <laughs> copious spare time, which you do not have, you are inspiring many people. When you buy this book, twenty percent goes towards tip Black. So just buying the book is a help. That's that awesome. That in and of itself, but I want to I want to say something to you about what's next. So I could write another book about my own experiences. I don't know that I'll do that, but I think one of the books that I'd love to write next.
0: I don't want to talk about it too
1: much.
0: (laughs) I got you. I got you. You could just say yes. But (laughs) I
1: I would love to write a second book when I when I kind of recover from this one. Um, And it might be about how we move about the country. So I learned something amazing. 1908 Ford rolls the first um, automobiles off the assembly line. And there's that famous quote. You can have a Ford in any color you want as long as it's black now. Is lost in that quote, that that one-liner, is the fact that Americans began to move about the country in a way that would change how America was forever. And in that, in that, that little piece of history, we learn that the car becomes the automobile, becomes less expensive, not more expensive. So he impacts manufacturing, he impacts mobility, he impacts the great migration. All of these things are an offshoot of this one invention, right? The airplane, same thing, right? It's, it's made to be this marble, but it becomes this principle in war. And so in its history, in its roots is the reason why there are so many men in aviation, it was war, right? So that's what the airplane was used for. So knowing your history, understanding its roots will help us get to the next place. I believe that there is time for another book. Maybe I got one more in me. But what's more important is the mission that this book set out to do. And I set out to do it because I felt that she was missing from our American narrative. She was missing from a female narrative, from a black woman's narrative. I was in the furniture store and a woman was helping me and she was from East India. I was telling her about the book. It was early on, about six years ago. She said, oh my goodness. She said, Honey, listen, that's the story of every woman in, in Delhi. That's the story of every woman in, in any part of it, north, south. I was telling the story to a woman in Mexico when I was on a layover from Mexico City. She says, Oh my goodness, Mi amor. Este es la cuenta. They told them, this is the story of everybody in Mexico, every woman. So I don't think in my mind I set out to do that. But this is a story, right, of women. And so you know, along comes the Voting Rights Act, right, of, of the um, 19th Amendment, 1920. There's prohibition. There's all this history. I hope that you walk away from this. Wow. Holy moly. This, this lady, she really was a superhero. With every cauldron bubbling around her, she was able to stay focused, right? Daniel on the lion's den. Keep, keep, keep the focus, despite noise. And I want your readers, your writers, your people, my people, because your people and they my people.
0: <laughs> they're all the same people.
1: It is all the same people. I want them to focus. Laser light on what they want. And I say this and I say it often. People have a dream and a dream is amazing. There's a difference between a dream and a goal. And here's the difference. A goal is a dream with a date on it. Put a date on that dream and guess what
0: happens? You won't get it done. It's true. It's absolutely true. Well, I I have a big vision. I'm sure you obviously have a big vision for this book and I do too. I think it's going to be incredibly successful. I want that for it, for us for it to just be, for everyone to read it, not just people in aviation. I want everyone to read this book. I think they will. I saw that it was already mentioned on Oprah Weekly, which is so exciting. I'm so happy about that. That gives me goosebumps. And I wanted to say, you know, I don't I don't know all the books that we're going to read in the book club in 2022. And, you know, I made unilateral decisions about the books that we're going to, that we were going to read this year. Um, and I want to involve some of our more dedicated participants in the decision making process for what we read next year. But I am making a unilateral decision that we will be discussing this book in February for Black History Month next year. And, I am so glad that I had the opportunity to interview you now because what I hope is that you are so insanely in demand for this (laughs) book that I won't even be able to get a hold of you by then.
1: That's what I want. I always have your number. I always look forward to speaking to you. (laughs) You are a delight. Thank you. And what you are doing is amazing from the Coast Guard to mom to writer to person who wants to share the stories. Our brains are hardwired for that. And you're so smart that you're taking that hard wiring and you're making all of us go back to it, you know, stop eating something that's processed, eat something real, read a book.
0: Well, I like to, you know, I I think all of the ways that we can expose um, our examples and our inspiration are valuable. And I just like to say that, you know, Instagram is awesome and it's super inspiring. I could spend all day on there. I love it. Um, and then these interviews and podcasts are another, another level. But for me, I just, the, the written word, the immersive experience of a story, that's, that's my place. And that's where, where I wanna be. I wanna be in your story. I wanna write my own story, invite other people into it. So that's just like my little niche. And they're all valuable though. Yeah. Oh, oh, thank you
1: so much.
0: Thank, thank you, sure, Carol. Thank you so much for your book. Uh, all of that blood, sweat, and tears, all of that walking in Bessie's shoes is so evident on the page in the most beautiful way. You've just accomplished something so special and we should all be grateful for it. Thank, thank you.
2: you. Tuesday, February 20th, 1923, Santa Monica, California. On January 26, 1892, Nearly 30 years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by President Abraham Lincoln, I was born in a tiny shotgun shack in Atlanta, Texas. My birth was a quarter of a century after the 13th Amendment was ratified. My mother, Susan Coleman, was born before all of these laws. She was born a slave. My daddy, George Coleman, was both Negro and Choctaw Indian. Neither my mother nor my father read nor write. And while their literary skills were underdeveloped because of their circumstance, my parents were resourceful, intelligent, and resilient. Daddy built our house with his bare hands. We were all hard-working laborers. My parents believed that laziness was sloth and punishable by caning. By age 10, I picked cotton with my sisters and brothers. My tiny fingers bled from the pincers on the bowls. The old men and women who had picked all their lives had an unmistakable humpback that came from season after season of stooping, bending one's back till the bones folded. When I could, I switched jobs to washing clothes and carved out my own laundry route. It's an irony that today I am called Queen Bess or Queen Bee. For only a short time ago, I was just another nameless, faceless black drone, a worker bee of the southern economic exploitation that was, and remains, modern slavery, the cotton fields of Texas. Although my desires were at first undefined, from the earliest age I was convinced that much better had to exist. I craved a better life no matter how dangerous it was for me to dream of rescue, no matter how vague the pursuit, I knew my survival depended on wishing and, more importantly, striving for greatness. During the year of my birth, Benjamin Harrison, a Civil War General who had fought for the Union was president. And while immigrants were welcomed through a brand new castle built on Ellis Island in New York Harbor, a U.S.-born shoemaker named Homer Plessy, an octoroon with one-eighth drop of African blood was thrown off a train because he sat in a whites-only car. At the same time, technological wonders were mushrooming. The ticker tape machine tapped out stock prices and got rid of messenger boys. Thomas Edison, a celebrated inventor with hundreds of patents, was perfecting the telegraph. Alexander Graham Bell, the telephone. Louis Latimer, a Negro draftsman who worked for both men, was a silent, but brilliant ingredient in both of their success stories. During the next two decades, the Wright brothers would sweep the world with their wings and Henry Ford would make the Model T. By 1908, Ford had not only invented his automobile, making it more durable, but he had designed a production line that would turn out 10,000 autos that year. This new mass-produced automobile was not more expensive, but in fact, it was cheaper. Ford's assembly line and less expensive automobiles would change how Americans moved about the country forever. To leave a trail was a provocation for me to organize my thoughts along with the dozens of newspaper clippings I had squirreled away and to make sense of this unlikely peripatetic life that I had led. Peripatetic. Now there was a $2 word if ever I heard one I thought Mrs. Bass was accusing me of something when she hurled that charge at me. Bessie, you are a nomad. You have become peripatetic. She blasted. My face must have betrayed confusion as well as offense, for she quickly followed with, You have become Aristotle's disciple. As I saw things, Mrs. Bass was an intellect. If she followed the scientific teachings of Aristotle, who taught as he wandered through ancient Athens, then I, likewise, had become a disciple of hers. Yes. I had become a journeywoman, just like her. Mrs. Bass traversed the country to speak the truth. I crisscrossed two continents to learn to fly. Cotton picker turned aviator, yes, I agree. At first glance, my life defied explanation. If anyone should tell my story, Mrs. Bass was right. It should be me. After that, the pages just flowed, and so did the tears, so did the laughter. Even though our life was hard and our struggles harsh, a great deal of merriment could be found in a house full of Coleman's. As I worked my way through my memories, reflecting became an integral part of my healing. I began to bleed the chapters of my life onto the blank pages of the journals that Mrs. Bass had given me. And before long, I would fill one, then another, and then another. I was going to need a lot more ink.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Please like, subscribe, and turn on notifications. Book reviews help sell books. Be sure to review the books you read at the Aviatrix Book Review website and wherever you buy your books.